Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Either this clock is slow or we're all early. (laughs) I'm having one of those moments where I'm like, was I just completely unmindful or did something change? Did the recording thing, was it here before and it moved? The big, that used to be here? It moved, okay, I'm not just like disoriented, okay. glad you're still here. Doesn't always work out that way. How many people felt sleepy at some point today? How many people felt restless at some point today? Anxious? How many people had at least one moment of, what am I doing here? (laughs) Yeah. I want to talk tonight about metta, this uh, subject and practice for our retreat. What is it? How do we experience it? How do we strengthen it? And uh, I want to start by just kind of framing a little bit, what are we doing? (laughs) And placing um, metta generally in the context of Buddhist practice. So we can think about the Buddhist path 
as having two general kinds of practices. This is one way to, to cut it up. So one is that they're, they're insight practices. And these are practices that help us to see the difference between what's actually happening and experience on its own terms and the stories and reactions we create about that experience. And through that process, we come to understand how and why we suffer and learn to suffer less. And in insight practices, mindfulness is the engine of transformation. It's what helps us to pay attention in this particular way from moment to moment and begin to see more clearly. So a little over 10 years ago now, I had a, a period of some very challenging health issues. I had chronic Lyme for about three years. And I went through this one period where uh, my late father was having a health crisis of his own at the time. And I was his caregiver. I was staying at his house. He was at the hospital. And I had just gotten Lyme and was feeling really awful. And I found myself lying on the couch in his living room, alone at his house in New Jersey, feeling kind of foggy and uh, achy and just kind of spiraling, you know, miserable and depressed and I'm never going to get better, that kind of experience. And then my mindfulness practice kicked in, kind of recognized what was happening. I don't feel well and I'm making myself miserable (laughs) on top of it. Right? And I saw the difference between what was actually happening, which was that I felt tired, there was some like achiness in my body, I felt a little foggy, and then there was all of this other stuff, mentally and emotionally, reacting to that. And then I took a deep breath, I stood up, and I started to do some qigong. I started to do some breathing and move my hands and just bring some more energy into my body and and care for myself. So this is the second kind of practice we do on this path, heart practices. These are complementary to insight practices, but they work in a different way. So metta practice is part of a whole suite of practices that heal and strengthen our hearts. And metta practice itself works in different ways. So one of the ways it works, and we'll start the practice together tomorrow morning, is as a concentration practice. And like any other concentration practice, it starts to mend the fragmentation and distractedness of our lives, the sense of being all over the place, not having full access to our energy, our resources, our faculties, And in doing so, like any other concentration practice, it starts to soothe our nervous system. And it develops a certain kind of resilience through the gentle, patient persistence of coming back again and again and again. So you've been doing a kind of concentration practice today when you're working with an anchor, coming back again and again and again. So metta is a concentration practice. It's also a healing practice that cultivates the goodness in our own hearts. 
It strengthens our capacity to be kind, to experience connection. And in this way, metta practice shifts the underlying default narratives of our life from a narrative of isolation, fear, hate. It shifts the predominant voice in our head to one of connection. How many people here had some moments of self-judgment or self-criticism today? How about self-doubt? I can't do it. It's not working, right? Metta practice will shift that underlying tendency towards a voice of connection, belonging, encouragement. It helps us to learn how to see the world through eyes of love and belonging rather than fear and isolation. So I mentioned it's part of a, of a suite of qualities or practices in the Buddhist tradition known as the Brahma Viharas. Uh, Brahma means heavenly or divine and Vihara means abode or home or house. So sometimes that word Brahma-vihara is translated as heavenly abodes or sublime abidings. Sharon translates it or renders it our best home. I really like that. These qualities are our best home. So what are the four qualities? So metta, which is often translated as loving kindness, is the first. And then compassion, appreciative joy or gladness, and equanimity or balance. These are not separate. They're all part of a mature, whole human heart. They're like different facets of the heart. And each can be practiced on its own, with its own particular uh, technique, or they can be cultivated all together through the vehicle of metta practice, which is what we'll be doing here this week. And we'll say more about each of those qualities as the week unfolds. But these four best homes, this is the, this is the bar for human relationship in Buddhist practice and the Buddhist way of life that the Buddha offered. It's the guidance for how we relate to the world of time and place and persons is through these qualities of love, compassion, joy or gladness, and equanimity, balance. So in this way, um, they guide our lives. They support us. They're an essential factor in all forms of practice, including insight meditation. This is from um, one of several of our teachers, Ajahn Suchito. He says, metta is the whole atmosphere of our practice. It's what you sit in. What else are you going to sit in? Ill will? So it's an integral part of how we practice. It's also a fruit of practice. The deeper our insight and wisdom, the more the natural result of that is care, compassion, joy, and equanimity. 
So what is metta? So the, the Pali word metta, the root of the word has two different meanings. One is gentle. And the analogy is used as like a gentle rain. A rain that doesn't pick and choose. It falls everywhere. Gentle in that it soaks into the ground slowly right, and nourishes that which it touches. The other meaning of the root of the word metta is friend. Friendliness, friendship. Mitra. So the most common translation is loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated as goodwill, benevolence, friendliness. Lately I've been thinking about it as kindness rooted in love. Kindness rooted in love. And I like the word kindness because its root is kin. Right, which points to this sense of our connection, our fundamental connection, just in being human, just in being alive, and knowing what it is to be vulnerable, to be exposed to loss, to grieve, to feel afraid, to feel elated or joyful. So what metta is not, is it's not sentimental. It's not some kind of fluffy, airy quality. Um, It's not being a pushover or putting on a happy face and being nice and polite when you don't feel good inside. Uh, It's not giving up your needs or letting people walk all over you. It's a very strong and durable quality. Love includes saying no, setting limits, saying, no, I'm not going to bail you out this time. And that can come from a place of deep kindness. It's also not some kind of far away mystical or spiritual experience or the sort of romanticized, idealized, ecstatic joy of the media and fairy tales. We know metta. You know metta. It's very down-to-earth, ordinary quality. His Holiness the Dalai Lama describes it as basic human warmth. And I love that. We experience it in countless ways, like every day. It's holding the door for someone. It's that moment at the grocery store where you catch someone else's eye and there's a genuine smile that just arises. It's seeing an old friend and going, hey, it's so good to see you. It's sitting down with that friend and leaning in and and asking, how are you? And then listening. It's saying, I think you've got a poppy seed like right there. That's metta. (laughs) It's kindness. It's simple. It's a movement of the heart to connect. So metta can be a feeling. It can feel warm. It can feel open. It can feel like everything from 
a sort of wordless, quiet connection to a vast, powerful, expansive love. But it's also not just a feeling. If it were, it would be very fickle like any other feeling that just comes and goes, right? We can't control the feelings, the emotions that pass through us. They're here, they're gone, depending on the conditions that are present. So metta is also a need. This is a deep human need. We all need metta. We know this scientifically. We know that the human uh, creature needs touch and love to grow. I knew this theoretically, and I understood it on a very different level when my wife gave birth to our son. And I saw how helpless, how utterly helpless we are when we arrive in this world for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) And how much our raw little nervous system needs to be held and soothed and rocked. We need that, that touch, that connection to survive and to thrive. And this need develops and changes as we grow. We, we know and understand through attachment theory, which I think JMO might talk some more about tomorrow night, that as we develop, we need certain kinds of mirroring and connection and encouragement. These are all like different facets of this domain of the heart of metta and the Brahma-viharas. Just, just think about how bleak life gets when there isn't a lot of kindness in our days. Yeah? Maybe you've had periods like this. This is one of my favorite quotes from Mother Teresa from a collection of her uh, teachings and talks called In the Heart of the World. There's so much suffering in the world. Very, very much. There's material suffering, suffering from hunger, homelessness, from all kinds of disease. But I still think that the greatest suffering is being lonely, feeling unloved, just having no one. I have come more and more to realize that it is being unwanted that is the worst disease that any human being can ever experience. We need metta. It encourages us, it comforts us, it reminds us that we're loved and lovable and that we belong here. Sometimes the hardest one to love is ourselves. The hardest place to find kindness or offer kindness is here. One of the um, kind of renderings of the famous quote from the Buddha says, you can search the whole universe and you won't find someone more deserving of your love than yourself. And still, 
sometimes we need that reflected back to us, right, from others. I want to share just two really brief stories about this from when I was younger. Um, When I was in high school, I had a falling out with some friends who sort of, you know, stopped wanting to hang out with me in, in high school. That was really frightening and devastating. And then I I connected with a couple of other kids who were like a year older than me. And I was hanging out with one of them this one time and sharing with him what had happened and, you know, how confused and hurt I felt. And his response stayed with me for all these years. He just said, well, that's too bad. They don't get to hang out with you. You know, it's just like, it's their loss. Just reflecting back to me, that goodness, that connection. And then quite a few years later, um, I was working at an environmental education center uh, up here in Vermont. Had spring program, summer program, fall program. This is in my 20s, after I'd started practicing. And I'd been growing a beard for about a year um, and had this sort of scraggly facial hair thing going. and um, it was, Part of it was sort of wanting to feel older and more mature, uh, as we can do when we're young. And I decided to shave. And so I shaved off my beard, and I felt so vulnerable. This kind of little boy face. And I walked into the dining hall, and the first person I saw uh, was the director of the program, a woman named Tori, who I'm actually still in touch with some fun circumstances. And Tori looks at me and she goes, nice face. (laughs) It was great. It was like all of the angst and the vulnerability. It's just like, ah, I felt so received and loved in that moment. So, metta is ordinary, accessible, We can experience it sometimes as a feeling. It's also a need. And it's more than that. It's also a skill. What would it be like to think of love, kindness rooted in love, as a skill? As something we can actually practice and get better at, as a capacity that we can cultivate. It's a skill because it's innate. It's the innate kind of orientation of the undefended heart when we're not stressed, when we're not frightened, when we're not overwhelmed. The orientation of the human heart is kindness. And there's no better place to see this than with children. When their needs are met, they're well-rested and fed and changed. When they're in a familiar environment, as Jess demonstrated on our opening night, hi, <laughs> right? My, my son, too, is in that state. Everyone he sees, hi, hi. Just a joy to just say hello and connect. My mother-in-law, we did some traveling together uh, last year, and we were overseas visiting um, my brother-in-law who was studying in Taiwan. And 
it was so wonderful having a baby with us because we had all of these interactions and experiences with people that would not have arisen otherwise. And she said, she's kind of watching all this, she said, babies are ambassadors. They bring out the goodness. I was walking in the morning sometimes, and I want to just acknowledge as I'm talking about my son and having a baby that um, can touch places of tenderness, particularly when we've had a loss. I want to just name that and hold space for it. One of the things I do in the mornings is take a walk with him uh, after breakfast when the timing works. And when he was still small enough, I would hold him in a little carry, you know, and he would be facing out. And uh, actually, this was in the evening, I'm realizing. I'm coming down the hill, down to this little uh, traffic circle right near where we live, and there's a little pub on the corner. And uh, there are these two men in their 40s, 50s, 60s, somewhere in there, sitting in front of the pub, each having a beer, chatting it up. And I'm kind of coming down the hill, I'm walking around, and I'm a little baby. And all of a sudden, their faces just light up. They're just smiling. The goodness is there when the conditions are supportive. So it's a skill. And it's a skill that doesn't mean feeling good or being happy. It doesn't depend on that. So Sharon tells the story of um, being in New York where she used to live and having just one of those unpleasant days where things are not going well and she got some news about one of her books that was really upsetting and she was just kind of in a funk. And uh, she walks into her building and gets in the elevator and another woman gets in the elevator with her. And she's kind of, you know, stewing and um, marinating in the things that have happened and The woman turns to her and says, today's my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) So Sharon turns and she looks at her and she says, I hope you have a happy birthday. Now, did she feel overwhelming waves of love and joy in that moment? No, but she was sincere. She meant it. She's able to connect from that place. So how do we do that? How do we learn to do that? How do we strengthen kindness rooted in love? I want to do a little experiment together, okay? If you're willing, humor me, close your eyes, and hold up your right finger, and touch your nose without looking. Okay, all done. <laughs> you do it? Yeah. My question is, do you know where kindness is in your heart as clearly as you know where your nose is? Can you place your attention there as surely as you can touch your own nose in the dark? That's what we're practicing here. How do we incline the heart towards kindness rooted in love? How do we remember that place, those moments that have reflected it back to us? 
where we have known that quality of connection, of goodwill, of basic human warmth. And whatever else is happening, without needing to change it or fix it or paper it over, when we choose to, to just come back there. I hope you have a happy birthday. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, if we were aware that we all contain love within us and that we can foster and develop it, we would certainly give it far more attention than we do. Guess what? Good news. We have the conditions to do that to give this capacity for kindness far more attention than we usually do. So there are many, many ways to practice metta formally, to strengthen it in our lives, to embody it and act from it. We can be quite creative with it. On this retreat, the primary technique that we'll be offering is through cultivating metta through the silent repetition of phrases. This is a technique that was codified about a thousand years after the Buddha lived. And we do that in widening circles in our life. We'll also be offering other ways of practicing it so you get a sense of kind of the terrain. But we'll keep coming back to the structure of this one particular way of orienting to and strengthening metta. In part because it provides a very clear container for training the heart, for strengthening concentration, and cultivating this goodness. So there are different ways you can think about it. We'll talk about it a lot over the course of the week. You can think about it as skill building, like strengthening neural networks. You can think about it as returning to this innate quality or capacity, this underlying nature of the heart, or even like tapping into some aspect of our life or our world that's already there, whatever supports you in the practice. The practice itself is founded on the understanding that transformation is possible. That we can actually shift how we live and how we experience ourselves in the world. And this is because our hearts and minds are malleable. This is one of the key insights of the Buddha and of all contemplative practice. The Buddha said, Whatever the mind frequently thinks upon and ponders, that becomes its inclination. And then in the 1970s, Donald Hebbs comes along and says, neurons that fire together, wire together. Same insight. The more you do something, the better you get at it. We're always practicing something. So, when I go grocery shopping, I'm in and out. (laughs) I'm like, okay, what's on the list? Get the groceries. Get, get like as quick as possible, efficient. Don't waste a lot of time. Like that's how I've 
condition my mind to operate <laughs> in a grocery store. Right? It kind of got turned, turn, the volume got turned up on that during the pandemic, right? When it was like, get in, get out. <clears throat> a few months ago, uh, after our son started to be able to sit up on his own, I brought him to the grocery store and I put him in the grocery cart. <laughs> And since it was one of the first times that I was doing this with him and he wasn't yet at the stage where he wanted everything, (laughs) he just kind of like explored the grocery store. You know, like, whoa, look at all those avocados. Isn't that amazing? He loves avocados. Or like, whoa, what's around this corner? Look at that person. You know, everything's new. It was such a different experience for me. Of being in the grocery store. I was relaxed, I felt at ease, I was exploring. And I saw in that moment how what had originally been a choice to be efficient and kind of get through the store quickly, that was a response to a certain set of circumstances and needs, had become a kind of unconscious habit a sort of default, where even when I didn't need to, I was kind of going through the grocery store really quickly. And it took a different set of circumstances to kind of wake me up to that and notice, like, oh, like I can actually just take my time and enjoy being in the grocery store. I don't have to rush. We're always practicing something. So what are we cultivating from day to day? How are we using our time? How are we shaping our minds. What do you think about all day long? How much of our thoughts are just meaningless drivel? How much of it is self-flagellation? You know, at the end of the day, do you focus on the things that went wrong? Or that stupid thing you said? Or the email that got you upset? You know, in, a, in a sea of other moments, of beauty, of space, of blessings, of challenges, of resilience. What do you focus on? And when you notice that, it's like, do you really want to watch that movie again? Do you really want to etch that groove in deeper right now? So we can learn to notice what we're practicing and change the channel. And then instead of metta being a feeling or an inclination that just comes and goes randomly, we can actually train our hearts to regard ourselves and others and life from a place of warmth and friendliness, we can transform the inner atmosphere from which we live and act. This is the power of metta practice. This brings me to one of the last aspects of metta that I want to touch on, which is that image of a gentle rain that doesn't discriminate, that falls everywhere. So one of the things that makes metta and all of the Brahma-viharas, these four best homes, so powerful 
is their unconditional nature. It's no strings attached. It's not, I'll be kind if. I'll love you if. I'll love you when. Metta, it's not based on being good enough, on being beautiful or pretty, on our status, our performance. It's not based on agreeing with others or even really liking them. When we encounter this in someone, this quality of, of an unconditional kindness, it's totally down to earth and remarkable at the same time. Treating people impartially with kindness. Not because they deserve it or not, but because that's how you want to live. That's what you want to bring into the world. And in order to do this involves a particular way of paying attention. So metta sees the good in ourself and others. It sees the potential for good in everyone and connects with that. So this unconditional nature of metta, this impartiality, again, this doesn't mean letting others harm us. It doesn't mean that we condone views that we disagree with or that we approve of actions that we actually oppose. It means that we take such good care of our own heart and mind that we don't allow it to move into ill will or hostility. And, and in doing that, that we don't erase another's humanity. One of the definitions of metta is non-ill will, non-hatred. It's defined negatively as the absence of animosity or hostility. That's the bar. Not some lofty, amazing loving experience of divine union, just try not to hate people. (laughs) And if you think about it, like in a moment of simple kindness, is there any ill will? Is there any animosity or hostility? It purifies the heart and the mind temporarily from those contortions. I think we all know how easy it can be to view those we dislike, those we disagree with, those who are doing things to harm others, people we love, people we know, people we don't know, creatures, to view them as other and then to demonize them. Metta is a radical practice in a world that is so polarized and divisive. It translates on the social stage into a kind of revolutionary love that offers us a bridge 
and a way forward. This is why Dr. King said, love is the most durable power in the world. It is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Because it changes the perception. Instead of seeing an enemy, we see a fellow human being who might one day be a part of a wider community because it understands that we don't have to like each other, we don't have to agree, but we do need to learn how to share resources on a finite planet if we want to survive. I think I want to close with um, one of my favorite stories about this very ordinary kindness rooted in love. So this is a story from um, a taxi driver in New York City named Kent Nearburn. Those of you who have sat retreats with me before may have heard heard this story at another another retreat. So Kent writes, I arrived at the address and honked the horn. After waiting a few minutes, I honked again. I thought about driving away, but instead I put the car in park, walked up to the door, and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 90s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like somebody out of a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. In the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab and then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm, and we walked slowly to the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother to be treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could you drive through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to a hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued in a soft voice. The doctor says, I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. 
She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she'd gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd asked me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness, saying nothing. As the first hint of sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building, like a small convalescent home, and two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and then walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly, lost in thought, for the rest of that day. I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I had refused to take the run or had honked once and then driven away? On a quick review, I don't think that I have done anything more important in my life. This is metta. It's basic human warmth. It's kindness, rooted in love, rooted in a felt understanding that our lives are connected in some way. That we're all sharing an experience of being human. It remembers that, it sees that, it orients to it, and then it moves from that place. So thank you for your kind attention. Let me just sit quietly for a moment, let the words settle.
So we have some time for walking practice now. And then uh, at nine o'clock, I invite you to come back (laughs) and listen to or participate in some beautiful chanting. And then, if you're really beat, to go to bed. (laughs) Have a short sit, okay? You're not going to get trapped. You come to the last sit. I hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.